Hey everyone, sorry uh, I'm running a little bit late. Um, it's episode 71, Twitter Files Part 2. Just more reaction as uh, there was a little bit more revealed today from uh, Elon Musk's Twitter space. And uh, I knew, I, I said I was going to do this earlier today, like late a.m., except I was locked out of my place for about six and a half hours today with a dying phone. <laughs> uh, my door lock has... It's an FOB. It's a fob key. And either the battery died or it got stuck on lock. So I was locked completely out of my place. I had to wait for them to come replace the fob and take the lock off and whatever. So I've had a day. Let's just put it that way. Um, a couple things, just as I said last night, was kind of a more quick hit reaction stuff from people's first kind of instincts as it sets in. And then, t you know, last night and then today we can step back and see the reaction uh, of, of people in media in particular. And uh, it was real interesting to see who was kind of leading the pack on some of these narratives that have now taken hold. There's two that basically were led. It was basically one was Tim Miller from The Bulwark and the other was Ben Collins from NBC. And they all kind of glommed onto this. You can kind of see the Slack channels light up like Christmas and you can kind of see how they all just mimic their own talking points. And the first one last night was from Ben Collins of NBC saying, imagine throwing it all away to do PR work for the richest person in the world. Humiliating shit. Ben Collins, mind you, works for a $40 billion company called Comcast, which owns NBC Universal. Same thing with Chris Hayes, watching some of the most famous, most powerful and richest men red pill themselves into disaster. Pretty wild. Mindy Hassan, imagine volunteering to do online PR work for the work world's richest man on a Friday night. And that was pretty much the uniform response. Uh, Simon Owens from Colin Goldman Sachs, a vampire squid to giving free PR to the world's richest billionaire. Uh, Wajahat Ali, sad, disgraceful downfall. I swear, kid, he did good work back in the day. Should be a cautionary tale, selling your soul for rich white nationalists on earth. He'll reap for the rest of his life, but is it worth it? And again, this uh, here's Sarah Reese Jones. We don't perform as a PR person to the richest man on the planet, but we do center how policy impacts the people over billionaires. And so that's basically what they decided to run with last night. And of course, just about every single person saying that was an NBC employee or a CBS employee or a political employee or a Washington Post employee. And, uh, the fact that you have an independent journalist who essentially just runs his own Substack, and I know Taibi was on Rolling Stone for years and other outlets, and the only way they thought they could discredit him was because he was on Substack. The second reaction we saw more take hold today was that the story that we were told was a conspiracy theory off the bat, which was the reason why it was supposedly banned, it was hacked material or as a conspiracy theory, 50 Intel People have uh, wrote a letter, which was pushed out by Jen Psaki at the time, stating that it was a Russian disinformation operation. Well, now it's the story's real, but it's just dick pics. And what's real, there's something that's interesting to me about that. And that was kind of championed by Tim Miller at the Bulwark. And then that one was picked up that this is just uh, you don't have the right to post Hunter Biden's porn. And the poor guy's in recovery and he's uh, he's an addict and, and you're picking on him. And. What's interesting about this is for those of you who were alive in the day in the, in the 90s, it is the exact same thing that they did to write off Bill Clinton's misconduct by saying it was just a blowjob. You guys are sex obsessed. 
why do you, why do you care so much about the president's sex life with Monica Lewinsky? It's his business. And of course, that wasn't what it was about. It was about obstruction of justice and intimidating witnesses. And that's, of course, what he was impeached over. And so you see the same exact playbook is that they were just trying to neutralize the impact of the story by saying, no, the, you don't have the right to post pornographic material, except uh, most of the focus, other than memes and jokes on Hunter Biden, whatever, um, is on, of course, Hunter Biden's emails and his business contacts. And as it relates to codenaming who the big guy is and et cetera, that's the real story. It is this exact same playbook. And I find it interesting that they're all championing a former Republican spokesperson who helped champion this kind of playbook. And now he's just simply flipped teams and here we are. And so those were kind of the two biggest reactions of media. And it's, I mean, neither of them really stick in my opinion, uh, because if it was just about dick pics, then why did you censor the story, which you said wasn't real in the first place? And so those are kind of the two prominent media reactions. Uh, Elon Musk was on Twitter spaces for a while tonight. And uh, I've retweeted that interview and I guess it was the largest Twitter space that's ever been in there. And uh, I went in and I listened to most of it. And of course, what's going around now on Twitter is that he said he's not suicidal and he won't be killing himself, which is obviously a mean joke for Hillary Clinton. But that's of course, supposedly what's going around. And if you listen to it, um, he gave a lot of interesting information. As far as the Twitter files go, he revealed that he, it's not only Matt Taibbi who's reviewing it, he also brought in Barry Weiss. So if you thought that uh, the meltdown over Taibbi was going to be something, wait till Barry Weiss publishes her, uh, her assessment. Um, Anti-Semitism will be cool again, boys and girls. Uh, ben Gollins is going to rock it from one, you know, a one to Kanye in about five seconds. That was a great tweet someone said. And so... Musk hinted that the release is going to be more about what happens after what happened after the election in 2020. And as far as COVID, uh, COVID bannings, and if there's anything that's coercion in there with the Biden administration working to ban accounts off Twitter over what they, what they call disinformation. And I think that that is a bigger deal than uh, the Hunter Biden story as it stands right now, um, because we didn't find much, you know, media slash government collusion uh, in Taibbi's revelations. And that was kind of the other out is that they, uh, they say this isn't a free speech issue because uh, the Bidens were just asking to have accounts removed uh, that just basically made him look bad. And uh, whether it's free speech or not is not the point that politicians should not be influencing social media platforms to get content that they don't like that might look, make them look unflattering. Because there's always a quid for quo there. There's, it's never just, please, will you pretty please remove this stuff? There's always going to be uh, a hint of a threat behind that. And we saw some of that stuff in some of the messages from people like Ro Khanna and whatever. And so Barry Weiss will be publishing more on this, whatever she finds. And the interesting thing is Musk said he's not, and I, I don't know, take him at his word, uh, he's not even overseeing this. He just brought Taibbi in and Barry Weiss in and said, here's everything that we have and go, go wild or go through it. See what you find. If you think it's newsworthy, whatever he, he said, he's primarily focused on the engineering side of Twitter, which I thought was a more fascinating conversation about, uh, where again, where is he taking it as far as, as a social media platform? 
And he had some interesting revelations, one about why he bought, he was asked why he purchased it in the first place. And his answer was basically like, I don't have an answer for you other than I felt like I had to, which, you know, it's Elon Musk. It's, you know, kooky spaceman talk. But he talks about, you know, that it's such an important platform as far as the direction of where we go as a people. And uh, it's, it's a gathering space and things like that. And it was too important to be going down the road that it was going down. And he's absolutely right about that. Um, it's not important in the sense of uh, you can lose your account tomorrow and go on not living. But as far as a gathering square and as far as the heartbeat of breaking news and stuff, he's absolutely right on those terms. The other thing that was interesting is he said Apple has resumed full advertising and several other companies have as well. And he had a correct assessment on how when he supposedly met with Tim Cook and he met with Apple last week, he revealed some details about that where he said when Apple pulled back the advertising, he said, OK, why are you doing this? And they said, well, you know, we're we're worried about the content on the side, whatever. And he said, OK, have you used it? Has anything changed? And then they go in and they say, well, no, nothing's really changed. And he notes that the reason why that got pushed out there was, of course, the Washington Post piece with Taylor Lorenz and Yul Roth. And this shows you how an activist media works because they publish something in the Washington Post and Apple takes it seriously. And they say, oh, shit, if we don't do this, um, we're, we're going to lose revenue or, or we're going to damage our reputation or whatever because it's published in the Washington Post. They don't really understand what the motive is behind publishing a piece like that. And, of course, the motive from Lorenz is to, is to devalue Twitter and basically tank it because it's no longer their toy. And he said he spoke with several advertisers about this and they got the same response and they're coming back. And that to me was real interesting because it shows you how much that group has just completely lost power in the span of about a month. And this is what was also interesting last night is the reaction to this was it's a no, it's no, it's a nothing burger. There's nothing here. And the story isn't so much that Matt Taibbi reported. The story is why didn't the Washington Post report on any of this for two years? Why didn't the New York Times and this cool kid reaction from people like Collins or Drozny, Daily Beast reporters, New York Times tech reporters, you cannot underestimate enough of how much it is the fact that they no longer have any power inside of Twitter. Their sources are gone. Vijay Gad is gone. Yul Roth is gone. Their sources at Trust and Safety and all of these other departments are gone and the departments themselves are gone. So that's why you're kind of getting these glib uh, cool kid reactions from these reporters is they can't do anything else. They don't have sources inside of Twitter anymore. They're gone. And so they're pretty much helpless. And all they can really do is shoot spitwads at Taibi, who basically did journalism. You can, you can talk about the value of it if you like, uh, but he's revealing the how and the why this thing happened inside of Twitter. And that's the job of a journalist. And it's real interesting to watch people who just play journalists on television and MSNBC. Their reaction to that is pretty telling. It reminds me of uh, how they felt betrayed sort of or stung by Glenn Greenwald when Glenn Greenwald essentially said liberal Democratic Party is basically just a mouthpiece for the intelligence state right now. And that's also a point Taibbi made uh, when he uh, he retweeted an article by Caleb Howe, who's really good at Mediaite. And he said, looking forward to going through all the tweets, complaining about PR for the richest man on earth and seeing how many of them have run stories for anonymous sources at the FBI, CIA, Pentagon and White House. 
Um, you can you can argue about the news value or Taibbi's editorialization, but you can't argue with his merits. And uh, that that is what is very smart about what Elon Musk is doing here is he's he's outsourcing this information to generally credible reporters on the political left. People like Barry Weiss, who's not a conservative, and Matt Taibbi, who's not a conservative. And people suggest he do this, you know, bit by bit. So he gives one to Taibbi and then Barry Weiss and maybe Glenn Greenwald and maybe Zed Jelani or somebody like that. And I think that that's actually a very smart move. And uh, he's basically, if you look at who he's doing this, he's giving this to independent journalists. And basically, these are people who signed the Harper's letter regarding free speech. And so I had have no problem if he would do that. I'd love to see Camille Foster, you know, do a report on this. And then he also suggested in this Twitter space that once Taibbi and Barry Weiss are done reporting on this stuff, he's going to basically try to create a public database where anybody can just download this stuff, open source it. And he had some interesting thoughts as far as open and free media as well. Um, he's very smart and he's very savvy with that stuff. When he gets kind of into the weeds about uh, what free speech is and what it isn't and how to label news organizations on Twitter and stuff like that, you can, you can hear he hasn't quite worked all of that out yet. Um, but it was an interesting Twitter space. He gave lots of good information about the future and the direction of the company. And he, he really gets into breaking down the software of Twitter and the engineering side of it. And I thought that that was infinitely more interesting than whether or not he's plans on killing himself. So those are kind of the latest developments. Um, Taibi's supposed to drop more. He hasn't said when, whether it be tonight or this weekend or whatever. So that could happen while we're doing this. That generally how this goes is news gets broken as I'm in the middle of doing these. Um, just going to go ahead and take people. If you spoke last night, uh, I probably am not going to bring you up tonight unless we're so, you know, dead on time that I have to go drag people up. Um, but just the, the usual ground rules. Uh, if you're not speaking, just please mute your microphone. It just makes it easier for the listening audience and the published recording. And it also helps me focus. <laughs> it's mainly me. I, I struggle with background noise. Um, and also just try to, I mean, depending on where we are, just try to keep it short. I know that doesn't always happen. It'd be, you know, this is a conversational app. So uh, just be mindful that there's uh, people behind you unless there aren't people behind you. So we'll just jump back in. Uh, reactions from last night, reactions from uh, anything that you saw today or if, uh, your reaction if you were listening in on the Twitter space with Musk. So we'll just jump in. Ashan Hi. Um yeah, you mentioned, can you hear me okay, by the way? Yeah, you're good. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned the Monica Lewinsky thing, right? And I think, like, absolutely, you know, you mentioned how um, Matt Drudge scooped Newsweek and they were sitting on it. And, I mean, there's no question that the media then was liberal and biased, but, like, they at least sort of had to pretend. And that, they, also, you know, they also wrote Drudge off as just a blogger. That was the famous yeah, no, thing. Sure, but like once the story was out, they had to admit, uh, yeah, no, th this is a real thing. Like they couldn't pretend that, that the investigation wasn't happening. And they kind of had to pretend, you know, they had to pretend they were unbiased and sort of report on the, they, or at least they felt like they had to, right? That like they weren't happy about it and they attacked Ken Starr and all of that, but you know, they, they couldn't they, they couldn't pretend that, like, there wasn't this investigation. They actually reported on it. Um, and I think what's interesting is, like, you've made this point that, like, 
social media is the worst thing that's ever happened to journalism and, and journalists. And like fast forwarding from, from then to now, it's amazing how like out in the, you know, it's gotten to the point where like, they're not even hiding it anymore. You know, like under the Lewinsky thing, they still, they were still, they, they were certainly le left wing and biased, but they at least felt like they had to pretend, you know, they, they, they wouldn't admit it. And now it's just like, not only is it, you know, if you say something, report on something bad about a Democrat, it's both sidesism and it's helping the Nazis. It's 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 not just on journalists, right? It's out in the open on Twitter. They're not even bothering to hide it. Looking at those tweets last night, it was amazing how like minutes after Taibbi would tweet something, all the journalists would like they hadn't had time to digest it. They would just jump on it and attack it. Um, and you know, it's, it's at the point now where if I show you a tweet from some of these Ben Collinses and people like that, and a tweet from JoJo from Jurors, you without showing you the names, like, could you tell the difference? Um, and I, I don't know, it's, it, it's just quite, it, it's, it's just a different world even than the Lewinsky thing, because it's like they've stopped pretending that they're, you know, there's such a thing as objectivity anymore. They're not even putting the fig leaf. Yeah. And that's what I think is interesting about all this. Yeah, when you go back to the other, the other thing you have to remember about the Lewinsky thing is they painted, they, they destroyed her. I mean, they and this is what's funny to me about who she is today. She's still like a Democratic Party person pushing Democratic Party talk points. And, you know, she's loved in the media and they yes queen her. And I'm like, dude, they they forced you to go into hiding. You know, Bill Clinton's attack dogs like James Carville and stuff like that. I mean, they tore her life apart. They called her a, a homewrecker and a whore. And they did this all in service of protecting Bill Clinton. Uh, because Bill Clinton was like their next Kennedy and a little too close to the bone on that one. Um, and then, of course, they what they tried to paint Ken Starr as just a, a, a sexual weirdo who's just interested in the details of Bill Clinton's blowjob life and stuff like that. And it's funny to watch them deploy that same playbook in 2022 like it's it's suddenly it's just about hunter Biden's dick pics you just want to look at his big dick and it's like no 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 i, I don't care about that i mean i care about some of the cd material um but other than that i mean he a lot of those photos make him look fucking cool and i'm not here to make hunter Biden look cool or like a party animal i mean the guy got kicked out of a fucking famous resort hotel in los angeles because he was doing too much blow and couldn't pay his bill but there are legitimate issues with Hunter Biden and, and how he sold his influence, sold Biden family influence around the world to corrupt oligarchs in both Ukraine, China and some in Russia. And that has to be, I don't know, investigated or it has to at least be clarified. And so what you see now is journalists who basically are just coming out against the very notion of journalism simply because they don't like the people involved. And that's when you say they become activists. Well, of course they have, and they have been for a very, very long time. The other difference in all of this is these are younger journalists. Okay, back in the Lewinsky day, these were all, you know, the network guys and the Peter Jennings and the, um, the Sam Donalds or whatever these guys are. And now you basically have very, very much online reporters who are also trying to work on a personal brand. Uh, as well as being a dual reporter for, again, a media conglomerate like NBC. No one in a sane world could sit here and say what Taibbi is doing as PR for the richest man in the world, especially when you, when you collect a paycheck from Comcast or Condé Nast, for example, or, or you know, Disney, 
um, who owns ESPN and ABC News. And Taibbi's right in the sense of a lot of these people's jobs now are protecting high intel sources. And if you look at MSNBC, as I've said, it's basically, I mean, Nicole Wallace has a different new intelligence official on every single day. Or she'll have Peter Strzok on or whomever, James Clapper. And that, to me, is one of the most interesting dynamics at work here is that Taibbi is basically a self-sufficient journalist. Now, he's an author. He's probably well off in some circles. Um, but. Uh-oh. Did I lose him? Uh, jump back up there, Ashanti, if you did. It looked like the app glitched a little bit. Um, I was going to give him a little bit more time, but the, this idea again of the mean girls table, which is what I've, I've called it. It's the former cool kids table. And it's again, because they've lost power, um, in Elon Musk's Twitter space, he had, you know, Kim.com up there, who I'm not the biggest fan of, but they had emails Chang up there, had a few other people who were just independent journalists and you have these guys working at corporate news outlets who are just poo-pooing all of this. And I'm just sitting here going, man, you guys are really on the outs here. Like you really are sitting here like shitting all over this Twitter space, which like had a hundred thousand people listening to it. If you've moseyed on over to Mastodon, they're all talking about it. And that's, what's funny to me about what Mastodon is. Mastodon has just become the place where journalists hang out with each other to talk about what's happening on Twitter. And it's endlessly funny to me. Um, but Musk is right in the sense of, and people were right in the sense of Twitter had become so bloated as a company. This is one of the things Musk talked about. And some other people talked about that. It, he said there were things happening in Twitter that not even Twitter knew about, like things on the platform, as far as coding, as far as accounts, and as far as bots and as far as sex, you know, child sex trafficking, et cetera. And that was an interesting quote to me because it had gotten so big that, you know, was one department talking with another one. And there was also an interesting discussion part about like, when did Twitter decide it was going to become like a human rights company? Well, I mean, I think it kind of decided that with D. Ray McKesson and Ferguson and um, back in what, 2014, 2015 and Anita Sarkeesian. And that's what I said. You know, I said that to Jack Dorsey, it was probably a mistake to turn your company over to those people because they just went in and they started ordering, you know, which accounts probably need to be banned or which accounts need to be this. And they just all fell in line and they did it. And Elon Musk basically said, one of the goals is just come here and refocus Twitter as a software company. He said, it's basically just software and servers. That's all it is. And so the goal is to come in and streamline that, clean it up and not worry about like, why does Twitter have a human rights watch group for the UN? Like, why does it even need or have that? This stuff spreads organically. So the idea you had Twitter working with the UN even is insane. And so that was one of the other interesting parts of that. So uh, I guess if Ashanti just dropped, but yeah, he's right that it's a different kind of activist journalist now. And they're, they're web savvy, they're brand savvy. They know what they're doing. And Ben Collins knows that what he's doing is getting attention. And I'm guarantee you his, his editors and higher ups are noticing how much attention he gets on Twitter now whenever he opens his mouth. And so they don't look at that as a detriment when, when they're trying to bring in revenue and they're trying to bring in clicks and they're trying to bring in eyeballs and he's the guy doing it. They don't care if he's telling the truth or not. And it really is that simple. 
Uh, but this idea that Matt Taibbi sold out for billionaires, uh, when again, he's, he's being said this by corporate reporters where if they lost their byline, where's Ben Collins going to go? Ben Collins isn't, if he goes to Substack, who's going to go to fucking Substack to read Ben Collins or Taylor Lorenz? Their entire power and the power that gives them this cry bully tactics is the power of their bylines. If Taylor Renz goes to Substack, she loses all of her power and able to go knock on people's doors and harass families of people on Twitter she doesn't like. Because then people are just like, oh, fuck her, like whatever. Um, but because she has the entire ways and means and legal department behind her at the Washington Post, which will defend her and her tactics all the way to a courtroom if they have to, then they know that that's the power. And that's Ben Collins. He knows he has NBC behind him. Uh, but this charge of doing PR for uh, the, the world's billionaire uh, when Taibbi's just doing journalism, is uh, it's laughable on its face. So, William, go ahead and uh, jump up in another bit. But go ahead, William. Uh, what a what a weird week this was. Starting with Alex Jones being the most uh, reasonable person in the room, and ending with uh, basically Twitter admitting that it uh, interfered with our election and. And possibly, uh, possibly more. Um, I'm, t- I'm tired, William. That's what I am. <laughs> and it doesn't. And I still have like two two pieces in the tank to write over a lot of this stuff. So no, you're right. It was it was one of those weeks where uh, it started with the dumpster fire, and then they brought the you know Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi brought out the fire extinguisher, uh, which I would also argue is one of the reasons the uh, certain sect of journalists, the same actors every time, are also just you know, pulling their hair. Yeah. Uh, one thing about the Twitter uh, files I I kind of grabbed onto was that the Hunter Biden didn't go to Jack Dorsey. It was handled by Joel and Vijaya, I think. Um, and Jack Dorsey wasn't informed until like later. So there are the, the head of head of uh, legal and head of trust and safety were were interfering or were interfering with the story behind the CEO's back. So it kind of tells you that the the mice were playing while Jack Dorsey was off doing whatever. Um, and the other thing I wanted to note was uh, when I, I'm hoping that the Republicans, uh, when Manu Raju comes running down the halls of Congress, uh, talking about uh, Yee and and Alex Jones and all them, that the Republicans will be like, yeah, we don't care what a private citizen does. Uh, we're looking into uh, the 50 million that the Democrats took from as stolen goods and uh, the fact that the federal government was telling citizens that they could no longer speak on Twitter. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping Republicans can recognize this as a way to, uh, counteract the, the disaster narrative of, of Trump and Yi. Um, well, no, they'll stick, they'll stay on it and, you know, they will, you know, they'll force Republicans to keep answering for this and as long. And as far as Kanye, I would just go, I don't even know who Kanye is and keep walking. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know why I have to answer for Kanye West. Um, 
it's interesting because Jonathan Chait, who's who's really now focused on DeSantis and Florida and the Florida governor, um, like half he he wrote a piece about how Republicans own Kanye, and you get two paragraphs in and it. And the whole rest of the piece is DeSantis, and it's like, why does right? Why the fuck does Ron DeSantis have to answer for this? And we saw it with Maggie Haberman, like it's this happened in his state, and it's like, oh yeah, is this where we're at? Like Ron DeSantis is uh, also Hitler because he won't ban Kanye West from air travel in Florida. Like, what is this? So there is kind of a clear strategy. They want to keep this going, and obviously, not having Kanye on uh, Twitter is is going to help that story disappear. Um, which is always, it's, it's the interesting, you know, it's the interesting paradox. And I do think Matt Iglesias is kind of correct on this point that, you know, having Trump on Twitter undoubtedly helped Democrats. And so the idea that they're pissed off that you're bringing Trump back to Twitter is no, no, you're not. You're really not. You're performing that you're pissed, but you're really not. And we saw that today with true social where Trump was just kind of like throughout the constitution, new election, um, that every reporter is like posting the screenshot from true social. I mean, it just shows you that they're not going to like, let this go away. And I noted to Tim Alberta, these guys who make these breathless declarations about the country and the constitution, whenever Donald Trump posts something on true social, and I said, the rest of us just kind of roll our eyes at this, like, okay, whatever, dude, it's not going to happen. Okay. It's what, what is Trump going to do? Form a Southern army? Well, no, you know, DeSantis has the Southern army. So, um, that's another interesting point in this, but um, yeah, I mean, I also think that that was also a part of this where Taibbi and Musk came in and just like vanquished that nobody's talking about Kanye's bullshit anymore. And that would have dominated. I'm sure maybe Sunday shows will or whatever. Um, But we also saw how they're basically just kind of, kind of keep ignoring the Twitter file drop, uh, I've seen tweets, I haven't verified this for myself, that the New York Times did not write about it or cover it, and neither did the Washington Post. And again, that's that's just doing a disservice. When you decide that this story just doesn't exist over here, well, people understand why you're not covering it. And bias in, in the media is very much not always about how they cover issues, it's how it's what they ignore. And then what they try to let go away. And as I said last night, there was a strategy behind this that was very much deployed. Brian Stelter, as I said, was an expert at this, where uh, something happens, like the IRS scandal, for instance, is a good one. They don't report it. They don't report it. They don't report it. It's just a right. And then it reports through right-wing media. And then Tucker Carlson or Bill O'Reilly gets a hold of it. And then it just becomes a story on the right. And then all they do is cover how the right is overreacting to something. Instead of them covering the story, it's always the, the right's response to something. Look at the... Uh, Bellaccio or whatever, the, the BDSM teddy bear campaign with the kids. Um, the New York Times basically wrote how this, you know, when QAnon and, you know, this, this photo shoot, when they collide, and all the New York Times did was like pounce on it and blame Tucker Carlson for covering it. And that's usually the dynamic that, that is at work here, which is XYZ happens. The political right of conservatives notice that something happens. And then all the press writes about is the reaction of the political right noticing something happening. So when this photo shoot happens with this, with this, you know, luxury brand company where they're showing kids like holding BDSM teddy bears. And even some of us who, you know, question the veracity of the groomer shit, even, even that's when I'm just like, like, 
fuck. Okay, what what really is going on here? Like, what is going on? Like, what the fuck is going on here? Why are why are you so determined to like make someone like me just go? Yep, you're all fucking groomers. Um, and then the New York Times just comes along and goes, well, see, this just gave ample firepower to more conspiracy theorists and people like Tucker Carlson. And you just kind of go, I don't think that that's the story here, really. Um, and then when they cover it in that fashion, people, skeptics go, why aren't you actually covering the fact that uh, maybe it's not appropriate to run a BDSM campaign for teddy bears and kids? I don't know. And so that's the other dynamic you have at work here. And then when one journalist comes out, we saw this with Dasha Burns and, and uh, Shotgun Frankenstein, where a journalist comes out, commits an actual legitimate act of journalism where she says, I don't think he can understand me speaking to him. They all pounced on her. And that was also the lesson of the Hunter Biden story, which was no journalist wanted to be the journalist that resulted, who wrote the story that damaged Joe Biden enough to where Donald Trump gets four more years in the presidency. And it really was that simple. Um, and so you saw it with Dasha Burns and then you saw it with Matt Taibbi and they all just kind of vampire fangs come out. And like I said, the two dynamics working there is they thought or they think Taibbi's one of them. That's the first thing. And two, they probably looked up to him in some of his writings about Occupy Wall Street and Goldman Sachs and stuff. So when he comes out and he's like, the bigger threat now is, is social media censoring voices that they don't like. And are, and are they doing it at the behest of a biased, obvious political party or, or government? And he recognizes that that's a bigger threat right now. And as I said last night, and I can't state this any clearer, it's not really red versus blue anymore. It, it's us versus them. And them can be, you know, people at outlets like at the Atlantic who are former or current claiming to be conservatives who are sitting here just going like, nah, this isn't a big deal. Um, it's not the, it's not a constitutional violation. Uh, maybe, but the pretense of censoring the Hunter Biden story also led to censoring people questioning CDC policy and why decisions were being made through, you know, the NIH, for example, and people just questioning it, just going, hey, you know, this is a little, no, gone. And that then becomes the reason why they know they can do that is because they knew they could get the Hunter Biden story removed from Twitter. They had allies there. They knew they could get that done. And now they can't. And boy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll just add one more point um, to that is I'm hoping that the Twitter files also reveal other other tech companies malfeasance and and pressure from the government, such as Facebook and YouTube specifically. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, YouTube doesn't come up enough. Um, but it was interesting to see in this, as I said this week, one of the uh, one of just the little known things that kind of flew under the radar was when this back and forth was happening by Musk and Apple. And if you saw how it was framed, it was framed that Elon Musk is going to war with Apple. It's like wait, Elon Musk never mentioned Apple. You guys mentioned Apple when you said Apple can de can just deplatform Twitter from the from the App Store. And all Elon Musk did was respond to your stories suggesting they do that, which is what it was. Um, but it was real interesting to, to see that both the CEO of Spotify came out and spoke out against Apple and said, you know, you're taking 30% share every of, you know, our deals for just existing. The same thing. So you had Spotify, two, two of the biggest social media platforms, which Spotify technically is, um, 
came out and basically jumped into Elon Musk's corner over this. And I thought that that was really interesting, as did the Netflix CEO basically come out. Um, another thing that dawned on me as I was looking at, as I was going through Spotify today and I was just, I was listening to music. You haven't heard any people, artists threatening to remove their music from Spotify over Kanye West, have you? They did this, remember, Neil Young and a few others, I think, what, Strzok, Cosby, Stills, Nash, whatever fucking boomer band. Um, they Remember, they, they said they wanted their music removed from, from Spotify over Joe Rogan. We haven't heard, or at least uh, in all in admitted, I haven't seen a single artist come out and say, if, you, if Spotify has Kanye West music on the platform, I don't want to be on there. I don't know why that is, but I think that that's just an interesting detail that isn't you're not seeing any artists threaten to boycott Spotify over Kanye West's uh, sudden sudden love of Mein Kampf, shall we say. So, William, I'll give you another run. Uh, and then... Sure. I, I think to answer that question is uh, they figured out no one cares. Yeah, so, maybe. Uh, I mean, but that still doesn't stop. That doesn't stop people from, you know, uh, making a statement like that. So, I mean, maybe that it's like, yeah, Spotify is like, well, we're not doing it. So maybe a musical artist is like, is you know, fine. I just know that they're not going to do it. But it's interesting that no, none of them have come out and said, we're going to remove our, we're removing our music from Spotify as long as Spotify is hosting a, a Nazi. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate your work and uh, have a good weekend there. <laughs> I have, I have uh, about 24 hours left in my actual weekend. I have to write in the morning, and then my hockey schedule's really fucked up this week. I have a 2 p.m. game, which I don't usually have, and then I have a late game Monday night. So they did they did re- real good job uh, scheduling games this week. So, um, but that's the breaks. But hey, Stephen, can you hear me? Yep, you're good. All right. So the whole disassociative. Um, disease that's going around on Twitter with these uh, Collins and whoever. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's like mommy will never be mad at Timmy because Timmy can do nothing wrong. And no matter what happens, Timmy's right. And it's just, it, it blows my mind. It brings me to the, uh, the, the election we just had where it was unbelievable how people kept voting blue, even though they were just, um, I don't want to say terrible, but yeah, they were terrible. And it draws me to a conclusion that this all comes to um, a single point in a Venn diagram of Trump. Okay, I'm listening. Go ahead. Like, wh- All right, what, so Ruben uh, from Wilson were, were clowning uh, Biden in 2013, 2014, whatever. And, you know, the whole, this whole, this whole uh, vice presidency. Trump comes in there. Things turn sideways immediately with, with the media. They all jump on the bandwagon anti-Trump. Then Trump does that thing with Georgia where he says, don't go vote. And now Trump's jumped back into the race. And all it is is Trump, Trump, Trump. So I am at the point now where our main cause, our main focal point, even with this Twitter thing, because he, he, people keep bringing up the fact that, you know, if, if it was Trump, you know, the, this, that, and whatever, uh, we we that's where we're at. So you think that this is still just all about keeping Donald Trump as the main character in all of this, given 
the timing of the FBI raid was August, and then that was in the news for two months. And then, of course, he's going ape shit on True Social. And if you notice that that raid is gone, like it's out of the news. There's not even people talking about Merrick Garland indicting him. I haven't seen any story. I saw something about the Southern District in New York wants to they called his enterprise a criminal operation. It's like, okay, well, he's had Trump University and he's had his businesses, you know, years before Twitter. And it's interesting. Um, I always thought it was interesting that like Martha Stewart went to prison, but Donald Trump never did. And it's like the guy doesn't exactly live quietly. Okay, so if there's any like shady shit going on in his companies, they probably would have found it like in 2005. There's a you know, it's interesting to me, uh, another shade of it. But your your hypothesis is that this is just about keeping Donald Trump in the news. I uh, maybe. um but I think he's the catalyst for all this. They're, um, I don't even know, the, I'm not a psychiatrist, even though I play one on TV. Um, there's just something, the hate, the just the visceral hate they have leads them to just block. Okay, like the DNC, when, when Biden was a candidate, and first off, 40 years in um, government, he's nothing but a politician, even though he wasn't in office. And they're saying, well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a political thing. He, but yeah, it was a political thing. He was a candidate. Yeah, and they were I, having stuff. I think that that's a good point that I saw someone make, and I, I think that this is a good point that they're saying. Obviously, it wasn't Team Biden who, uh, or wasn't Biden wasn't president when he had that the New York Post story frozen. Uh, it appeared to be something that happened all with inside of Twitter and some confusion and being like, should we should we stop this? Yeah, stop it, like whatever. But this idea when they said Team Biden was getting shit removed, and they're like, well, it's not a it's not a First Amendment violation because he wasn't the president. But to sit there and say that Joe Biden is not an institutional part of Washington, D.C. He's been a senator for 50 years, and he basically had the backing of the entire intelligence committee who came out and wrote that letter that 50 50 intel officials say that it's a Russia disinformation campaign. And you're going to sit there and say that, no, 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 he's just a candidate. He was just a man running for president and stop picking on his son. Um, it's it's completely see through for what it is. Joe Biden's been in Washington D.C. for forty five years, so go ahead. I just I wanted to kind no, of no, no, I no, that's, I that's wanted my to point kind of, too. Uh, elaborate on on where. Yeah, so um, full honesty, I I didn't vote for Trump in twenty sixteen. I uh, I wrote in like Donald Duck or, or something like that. I, I just I couldn't vote for Hillary. I they probably they probably counted that a vote for Trump. Just so you know, <laughs> they probably just saw Donald so and is, went, okay, there's another. I just crossed my fingers and I figured four years, what could, what, what could go wrong? Man, I got that wrong. So on the second term, on the 2020, Biden uh, from his basement, who, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's pretty much, he wasn't as senile as he is now, but he was pretty senile. I was like, there's no way. We got to go Trump. And then the 81 million votes and all this other stuff, whatever. Election's over. But we're still talking, or not we, uh, the media still uses Trump as their crutch. I can go into an argument on, well, I'm not on Twitter anymore. Well, I'm suspended. So I can go on Twitter with somebody or not Twitter. I'm sorry. With a, with somebody on, on, on a text. And I could mention the fact that these, these, uh, this um, Twitter thing, you know, they, they sent memos saying, Hey, maybe you could talk about, maybe you could give rid of this or get rid of this person. And they're like, well, Trump, Trump uh, did this. I'm like, wait a minute. Why did we always go back to Trump? Trump isn't president. He's, it just gets to me sometimes. And uh, I think the catalyst is Trump. How do these people turn from anti-Biden to, to anti-Trump to pro-Biden to everything DNC? 
and everything Republicans are fascists. It's just it, it. The only the only thing that is constant is Trump. Trump. Uh, part of that is I'll I'll take you back to the George W. Bush presidency, and it was I think it was the the economic collapse that happened in that year, and Pelosi was just hammering Bush. And it was like a year or two into Obama's presidency, and she was still talking about it. She was just saying, we're, we're still in a recovery from Bush. We're still in a recovery from Bush. And she was asked, basically saying, how long are you going to use this? And she said, forever. And that's part of the goal here, is they, they view Trump as an anchor around the Republican Party's ankles, which he looks like he is now. And so they believe if we can keep him front and center, one, he brings eyeballs, he brings clicks. They have entire teams dedicated to just him um, that it will just keep it will knock the Republican Party out. And we saw during this last election that some of that is actually true. So now they know that it works. And so the goal has always been to keep him ever since January 6th and he left the White House. The goal is to keep him front and center, and it's for several reasons. One, they think he brings revenue. Um, you're seeing massive layoffs at CNN. Uh, not, you know, all popular. There's a few. Saliza, the, the king of Twitter ratios, is gone. <laughs> um, but you're seeing just contributors get off. They just can't. They just killed the HN network, which was a spinoff of CNN. And it's because they just overhired to cover all of Donald Trump. And now he's, you know... You can only get so much juice out of that orange on a daily basis, so you can't have, you know, 100 people running it. I wonder, let me do this. Let me go to CNN.com right now. 12 stories, I bet. Let me see. Uh, We have, they might surprise me here. Hold on a minute. I got to read through. So they got uh, some stories on Georgia. Which is one about Trump there, but if you scroll down, oh, so CNN might have surprised me. Um, Try MSNBC. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. So, <laughs> but you get kind of what I'm saying is, you know, reliably you could go to any of these websites, and the first four, five, six stories are going to be about him, or January 6th, or Mar-a-Lago, or the raid, or what he wrote on True Social, or whatever. So part of that is to keep him as the main character. And also, a, a lot of people made a lot of money off him being the main character. And I don't have to name names. You all know who they are. And so it's it's well, advantageous. But- it's personally advantageous to keep him front and center. And should he not, should the political right buck him, then you're going to see the, the, the transfer of never desantism. And that's basically what their plan is. And that's it. And they have they have a very basic playbook that they execute very well. And that's that that's the explanation of why you're seeing it still for two and a half years. Trump doesn't do the political right or himself any favors by also wanting to remain the main character. He wants to be that person and he doesn't see a detriment to any of that stuff. And again, these midterm elections uh, probably taught some lessons and it's just a question of, you know, do you learn those lessons or not? So Bo, I'll go ahead and give you last word there too. And then, yeah, that led me to the, the next point I had. The, the disassociation I was talking about on the left is also on the right. There are people that are just Trump. It's, yep, yep, Trump, Trump, Trump. And there's people, like I said, people on the left, Trump hate. So it's not doing anybody any good. 
there, there is so, I mean, we're the, I'm sorry, we're the divided states of America for sure, but you can't look at something like Trump has been doing and say, well, that's great for us. It's not. And you can't look at something the left is doing, pushing the fact that this is awful, that's good for us. So um, again, the single point on all this in the Venn diagram is Trump. And I don't understand why he doesn't just decide to go, you know what? I might be the problem. Because he's been told his whole life he's not the problem and he's very, very rich and he doesn't have people telling him that. And it's pretty much that simple. All right. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, Bo. I hope, I hope I helped clear some of that stuff. Any reaction from media or uh, the, the, the interview with Musk himself? Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, Stephen, how's it going? Good. I'm okay. I I really didn't want to do this one tonight. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you guys, but I said I was gonna do it earlier, and uh, I wasn't able to. So here we are. So no, well, no it doesn't. It's no offense on you, your, uh, you guys. You guys, I'm fine with. It's just the actual act of doing it. So, but I'm okay. <laughs> I'm tired. Good, yeah, like I said, we appreciate your dedication, man. I was gonna say um, your opening was really good. Um, you know what struck me kind of kind of funny is the way that most of the uh, responses to the story from last, or excuse, I guess the story from today with the, um, with the, uh, the Q and a where he's, you know, literally flying on a jet. You can hear his kids in the background. Um, yeah. You know, super down. I was, I was, I was making the joke that everyone who was hosting the room was like the, the mafia uh, in the dark <laughs> night in the hotel while Musk is oh, on yeah. his plane flying to Hong Kong. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. The guy in the TV. <laughs> the Batman has no jurisdiction. Um, yeah, I thought that that was yeah, funny, too. Good. He's like, they asked, because the, the connection kept dropping out. And I was like, you know, maybe he should be working on the tech behind Twitter spaces, which is essentially what this app is. It's no different. Um, right. Except, I, I mean, I think that this works. I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter spaces because um, I don't know. There's, something annoys me about it, and I haven't really quite put my finger on it. Um, but it's the first one that I kind of listened to through and he would drop and then they would just, you know, it's Kim.com scratching himself for five minutes or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, he's talking about how, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm losing connection. I'm in the air. And then you hear him kind of go, did he just say he's on his plane or whatever? Yeah. But yeah. At first I thought he was driving in his Tesla down the highway, leaving Twitter headquarters, but he, either way he was, he was just kind of just, you know, hanging out and talking to folks and, um, you know, that's that's kind of what's funny about it is, you know, all the uh, the left wing media's response was, you know, I can't believe you guys are going to sit there and, you know, take uh, listen to, you know, a billionaire. And, you know, like, uh, you know, you don't need tips from a billionaire and you're propping him up by, with the Twitter files and everything. And then you look at how they cover SBF, who's also a billionaire, or at least was one. And, you know, they see him as, you know, the uh, you know, the whole uh, the altruism thing and um you know, it's so obvious how they view wealth. If you if you have wealth and you spend it, you know, capitalism, if you have wealth and quote unquote, give it away, then, you know, you're it's if you, know, if you have wealth and you agree with us politically, that's pretty much the baseline <laughs> of it. Um, and yeah. he talked he talked a little bit about that. He talked about how Silicon Valley, the reason why Twitter has become such a far left driven company like if you go back to 2012 2013 2014 it really wasn't a politically driven company um 
and then after 2016, it really changed. 2016, 2017, 2018, it pretty much just became a political weapon for, you know, progressives working at Twitter. And he goes into that and he says, look, the company's based in San Francisco. You know, 99% of the employees at work at Twitter are of the far left. So they're going to, of course, they're going to put their own biases into the platform and, and who they ban and who they shadow ban and who they boost and who they don't de-boost. Um, and that's something, at least on my experience over the last month, was clearly happening. I haven't seen a bulwark tweet until the, somebody brought the one from Tim Miller into my feed today. <laughs> I haven't seen a Rex Chapman tweet, maybe since his, you know, professed love for Nancy Pelosi. Um, I didn't, I completely forgot that Kyle Griffin existed until someone showed screenshots of his tweets. And I thought, how is it that I was constantly seeing retweets of these people for months and months and months? And now like, I don't see them at all unless they come across my feed or someone sends it to me. And I thought that that's, you know, that will probably be upcoming in some of the revelations of, uh, of the Twitter files. Do I think I'm going to be in those? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, maybe, but as far as deboosting boosting and whatever. So there was clearly some kind of shenanigans going on, but it's basically, he talks like, you know, Silicon Valley is just kind of a hive mind of progressive thought. And he's right. Um, so when somebody comes in and disrupts that and Peter Thiel gets that same kind of treatment because Peter Thiel went wow. after Gawker uh, or he at least f helped Hogan finance the legal fees to go after Gawker. And that's another thing that, you know, don't underestimate how much that kind of stuff plays in this. Um, but, yeah, it's, he's basically just not one of them. And that's yeah. all it comes down to. So it's, it's you know, they didn't have a, a problem with the previous millionaires who own Twitter. Like, it's just, it's Elon Musk and he's the right. richest man in the world. And they're just using class warfare. And that doesn't really work with Musk because the photos you see of him are like hanging out with the coders at Twitter. You know, right. he's been doing this for 30 years. He's a he's a coder. He's an engineer. He helped code PayPal into existence. It used to be called X. And now he's calling Twitter. Basically, Twitter X is going to be the next step. And he so you kind of get an inkling of where he's going here with. He also talked about possibly doing like monetization on Twitter where people can do direct direct to direct payments like Venmo and things like that, which I don't know how smart that is. Um, but to sit There's there, and go, you know. To sit there and try to play class warfare with a guy who's hanging out with coders and then he's also he's on Twitter spaces engaging, you know, with several people. Now, he didn't do it like this. Um, and I'm not talking, you know, I'm not Elon Musk. Calm down. Um, but, you know, he's taking questions from other independent journalists and stuff like that. Um, he he comes off as very honest. He comes off as affable. He comes off as kind of cool. Um you know, I still say everything he does should be viewed through the lens of skepticism until he delivers a goods. Um, but he kind of just comes off as like Tony Stark, basically. And it's like, are you running a class warfare on that guy? It's not going to really work like like Elon Musk is some evil banker on Wall Street. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very well said. And, you know, I think I think the way that they uh, obviously, like you said, he's not one of them, but you know, now that um, even though Trump's not on Twitter, you know, he's clearly like the focus of, you know, the media. And that's, you know, it, they, he's basically their their current substitute at the moment because, you know, he'll literally respond to people with no blue check. He'll respond to people with a blue check. Yep. He'll retweet things. He'll he, you know, post things. He genuinely he likes using the platform. 
And yeah, yeah. that's that's the biggest change between him and old Twitters. Old Twitter, all of those people at Twitter hated using the platform. They just they all they did was try to inhibit people from using it. Here's a mute button. Here's turn off replies. Here's you know all of this stuff. And then it's now here's blocking for misgendering. And they just they hated people using their platform. All they tried to do was get people to stop using it. Because it's almost like they were afraid of it. They were afraid of, you know, the bad things that were on Twitter. And that a, a largely, in fact, I think, especially with Jack Dorsey is, I think a lot of them blame the company and themselves for basically being the number one tool that Donald Trump used to get elected president. And so, you know, imagine if you're a, like a 20-something progressive engineer or you're part of one of these curation teams or whatever – and every day you wake up and you're like afraid to look at your jobs app because of what Donald Trump is saying. And so that's kind of how they looked at that. I think Elon Musk genuinely enjoys the platform. He sees possibilities with it. He sees places it could go places where it could be better. Um, will that happen? I don't know, but Twitter as it was, was unsustainable. It was an unsustainable company that, you know, was just basically turned turned into a censorship arm of the DNC and the Biden administration. And so whatever he does with it, um, I'm confident it's probably not going to become that again. Um, I'm confident that, you know, Joe Biden and, and, you know, DHS can't just dial up Elon Musk and say, hey, that dude's that dude's spreading unfounded information about menstrual cycles and COVID vaccines. You need to take care of that. And Musk would go, why? Like, what are you, what are you going to do about it? And well, we're going to bring you in front. We're going to haul and we're going to legislate. And he's like, okay, well, I have lobbyists too. And so again, it just, it comes down to, he's not one of them, but he's also someone who he sees the technology. He sees where this could go. He sees the importance of, a, of, you know, a, a main town square, so to speak. And uh, he, he might tank it, you know, it might sink to the bottom of the ocean. And I think a lot of people would probably be fine with that as well. Yeah, I, I would I would have to agree. I mean, there's there's plenty of people even probably in this this chat right now that aren't even on Twitter or, or have been banned and aren't just, you know, don't want to even start a new one or whatever. But, you know, it's um, it's you know, and it's also pretty small in comparison to something like Facebook, like worldwide. So, you know, it's it's not the biggest one. But, you know, it's interesting. You know, I was going to mention this, too, um, you know, about the media's response to um, to, you know, today's Q&A and also the Twitter files and how that's all going. Um, you know, they they got away with it the first time with the whole, um, you know, Russian disinformation um, and they got away with it, calling it, you know, uh, conspiracy theory and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there's a laundry list of tweets from all of the Aaron Rupars and Taylor Lorenz of the world that, you know, were calling it at the time uh, Russian disinformation, Jin Psaki and everybody. And so basically, they essentially in their own bubble, they don't have to take it seriously because we're not going to relitigate this thing now. And then, you know, essentially you've got the big ones, you know, like, like you said earlier, the Washington Post, the New York Times, of course, you know, your uh, cable network, CNN um, and then MSNBC. They don't really count. They're just going to tell you, you know, they'll straight up say we're not going to cover it. Um, and then, you know, the nightly news, NBC and all that. I guess my point is, is, um, you know, when you talk about that, they're basically just going to, you know, probably by Monday, you know, like on The View, for example, it'll just be about Kanye West or, um, you know, something about Trump. They'll, um, they might say something about Elon having this, you know, Q&A, but it was a bunch of 
you know, right wing people like the persistence and Kim.com and Ian Miles Chang. And, you know, they'll they'll bring it up, but then they'll just move on to something more less important. And, you know, as you know, listeners, you know, and, and watchers of all this stuff, you know, we know how important it is. You know, I mean, this is literally the richest man in the world just took an hour and a half out of his time just to talk to, you know, people who aren't in the, the media bubble. And that's probably what they don't like. They probably don't like not being included. Um, and then the other thing is just the fact that with the, the Twitter files, you know, he's 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 putting stuff out there that makes them look bad. It's put, he's putting stuff out there that show that they, you know, will literally just believe anything. And like you said earlier, you know, if the Washington Post reports on it, then, you know, everyone on the left has to immediately take it seriously without even reading the article. They'll just look at the headline and, you know, they'll talk about it with their friends and, you know, uh, you know, they'll they'll respond to it on Twitter and that sort of thing. And, and, and basically it's they still, regardless of what we think about their integrity and all that, which we know is not good, they still have the loudest voice in, in the country as far as. Um, as far as that goes, you know, like the reporters that talk to KJP every day, Ducey, I guarantee you Ducey will ask about it on Monday. She'll give some lousy response and it'll, you know, probably just, you know, he'll he'll double down and then triple down and then she'll just move on. Um, and then none of the other reporters, your April Ryans and all these people, they're not going to ask her about it. Um, and and basically and then it'll probably die unless, again, something crazy just, you know, that we don't already know comes out from the Twitter files, then, you know, essentially they'll just say, oh, yeah, you guys just think we're a bunch of lefty, um, you know, kooks and, you know, you're the ones who are the conspiracy theorists. And it'll just go back and forth. And, you know, um, you know, so I'm, I'm very glad that he did it. I just hate that it's, you know, other than the 100,000 people that were on Twitter tonight listening to him talk, I feel like it might fall on deaf ears like nationwide because it's not going to be on the front page of any newspapers. It's you know, it's not going to, um, you know, and, and I guess real quick, I'll shut up here in a second. But um, they, I think the reason why they again, they, like you said earlier, they're trying to pivot. And even if they do bring it up, they say, oh, well, it's about, you know, just making Hunter Biden look bad. Oh, don't talk about my son. Well, he's 50 years old. First of all, he's not, you know, he's not a, a baby, which is hilarious. But, um, you know, people forget about, you know, 10 percent for the big guy. You know, that's a that's a big deal. Like that's. That was literally him taking a job in Ukraine, working for a natural gas company. And he probably never even had to go to the office. He would just get the 50000 deposited every month or whatever. And then he's kicking 10% back for his dad for getting him the job. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. that's actually more – that's something that, like, would be, you know, like, let's make the, a Hollywood movie about that the, and call it All the President's Men. The, uh, I mean, the biggest thing, and thanks, Chuck. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dump you and move on to David, but I appreciate it. The, the, the biggest giveaway is uh, the fact that Karine Jean Pierre has stolen election tweets, and she wasn't asked about it once until it, I think it was Peter Ducey who they all knew, and it just basically comes down to you know Ducey and uh, also Jackie Heinrich are pretty much the only two reporters in that room who don't want to be on Kareem Jean Pierre's future MSNBC show, and so that that really is one that you, you years and years, six whatever, and then the White House makes 
the face of their White House, the press secretary, an election denier, and they don't care. And that's it's one of the biggest dead giveaways there is. So, again, thanks, Chuck. David. Hey, uh, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, those rare, rare journalists who like the ones you just mentioned, like, you know, Barry Weiss and, and I think Robbie Suave falls into this category and who have some integrity, who are willing to sort of put truth ahead of self-interest. Um, you know, Dasha Burns, I think, might uh, fall into that category as well. Do we know... First of all, did she ever, and I hope the answer is no here, ever apologize for her reporting no. on Fetterman? And, and, and do, you, do you know what happened to her has, in the last several weeks since that story broke? No, she, she, ne- she, she never did apologize. She actually pushed back to Kara Swisher and a few others. Good. And it just, and it just compounded the issue. And people forget it was, either, it was either the next day or two days after she gave a pretty hard-hitting interview to, against Oz where she came out and, you know, called Oz out on some of his kind of hypocrisies and stuff like that. And that interview just died. Right. And so I guess I look at it and say she got lucky because Shotgun Frankenstein won his race. If he would have lost, she would have been burned at the stake as a witch. hundred percent. They, they would have, they would have dropped her in the ocean to see if she floats. And <laughs> well, here's she, my question. Her career would be over. And that's what it was. It wasn't so much, action against Dasha Burns, it was a it was a warning shot to anybody that you are not to talk about John Fetterman's stroke or his abilities. And we saw that as he's walking through the Senate hallway and they tried to ask him questions and he could he didn't he didn't respond. And so that's when his his staff jumped in and said, This isn't gonna work, guys. He had a stroke. And it's like, wait a second, why does that matter? You you said that it was just a hearing problem. And so these are questions that they're trying to get, they're trying to tell reporters, don't you dare go there. And something that was really interesting is his chief of staff was just named and it's Adam Gentleson, who used to be Harry Reid's chief of staff. And when you see a name like that get made into his chief of staff, you know that John Fetterman's not going to be the one making decisions because he can't. It's going to be Adam Gentleson probably making those decisions until most likely his wife steps in. And so... That was one that that was another bit that flew under the radar today that this this guy, this longtime Washington power broker uh, who know knows kind of the ropes and everything um, was made Fetterman's chief of staff. And it's going to be his agenda. It's not going to be Fetterman's. No, that's OK. I didn't know that, although I, it, I'm not remotely surprised to hear you say that. But I guess my question then is whatever quality Dasha Burns has or Barry Weiss or Robbie Suave or Matahibi has this rare, rare quality to be willing to put truth ahead of self-interest and, and, and willingly forfeit a chance for a seat at the cool kids table. Um, can that I think Taibbi's be... already been to the cool kids table. He doesn't care. I think that that's what it is. He doesn't. He doesn't. Well, okay, give, but he, he doesn't give a shit what Ben Collins and MSNBC right, okay. says because okay. he doesn't have to. I mean, he's he's well established. He's an independent guy. Um, he's, he has spoken out, he's, you know, he has spoken up against wall street and and corporations and he's like a Bernie Sanders guy, but he also, he's a liberal guy in the sense of, he understands that, you know, if he sees where censorship is primarily coming from as it relates to big tech. And he's a guy who's written books about both sides of the media. He wrote what hate Inc, which featured Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson. And he said, audiences on both sides of this debate are being manipulated here. 
Um, so when, but when he sees, you know, the New York Post publish a story and Twitter blocks it, he's just a guy who goes, "Hey, why'd you do that?" Right. And that, there's a lot. There's a few of them on the left. Zed Jelani's another one. Glenn Greenwald, obviously. Um, Barry Weiss is one that's over there, and they just go, "Hey, why'd you do that?" Yes. And that's... then you then you get the twenty something cry bullies led by Taylor Lorenz and Ben Collins going in here and go, "Shut up, old guy, sell out." And that you know, and I don't think he cares. That's all. No, that's it my is. okay. That's my point. Whatever quality within him allows him not to care. Whatever sets him apart from Jake Tapper, a very bright guy who sold his soul like most of these people end up doing whatever sets him apart from those people sets Barry Weiss apart from those people. Maybe dash Dasha Burns, we hope has that quality, whatever that quality is. My question is, do you think that quality can be fostered in young journalists, encouraged in young journalists so we can have a generation of young journalists coming up where 99% of them aren't like Jake Tapper no. and the sellouts, maybe only no 80% are and 20% are like Tahibi. Do you think it can be fostered? in other people. No, because young people coming into journalism are taught by people who are rabid leftists. Their professors are all, look at a guy like Jay Rosen at NYU, where he's expressively said, like, my job is to not pursue truth. It's to, it's not to both sides issues. Um, and you look at Margaret Sullivan is another one. You look at who is teaching journalism. Brian Stelter is now a, a fellow, I think, at where Georgetown or Harvard or whatever. He's teaching a series. So when you get these people who are their their goal is to create more journalists who are like them. OK, so and a good demonstration is this no journal, no real student, no 20 year old, especially in this day and age of cancer, of getting canceled and, you know, whatever is is going to do that because one they're cowards to their kids um and three they see that there's no economic benefit they see that if you fall in line and you play ball there's a pretty quick path for you to go to an outlet like BuzzFeed, for example, or Slate, and then jump up to a Politico or a Washington Post or a CNN. So it, they see that um, for someone like Taibbi to be where he is, he's he's also not in his early 20s. I think he's in his late 30s or, or what have you. Um, so it's only until later on do you maybe develop, like once you've had that established, you know, reputation, because journalists do establish reputations, obviously, that they say, you know, what, I don't really I'm not going to play ball here anymore. Um, and so, no, I, I don't think that it can be fostered. I think the entire professionalism journalism class needs to just be hit with a wrecking ball and taken apart. And I I think they have to be shown that, um, you know, there's no there's no value for you in becoming a journalist in this day and age. You're much more, you know, if you have the connections or if you work hard or whatever, you're probably much better off creating a Substack or your own website or whatever, and just trying to gin up a following somehow. Um, you can argue that that's how I'm sitting here today. Uh, I basically just had a Twitter account and I just said, okay, if I get to this account, I'll start a website. And then I got picked up by national review. And then I picked up a few, few other outlets and I'm still pretty much independent, but obviously I still write for Spectator and Washington Examiner. Um, but trust me, I've had opportunities to where, as I've spoken prior, if I have just tweaked my belief system a little bit, I could probably be sitting at the Daily Beast or at the Atlantic right uh, now. And so, course. no, I think it, it has to be, why are you getting into it? And right now, for too many young kids, they see 
they see the people like Taylor Lorenz or whatever, and they say, that's what I want to be. Because it's, again, it's not about being a journalist, about discovering truth, discovering facts, publishing facts, no matter where they go, who they affect, who in the powerful centers does it affect. Um, It's about also being a brand influencer now. And it's about having a following on places like TikTok and what have you. And so they see that and they see something that's very addictive. They don't see themselves as you know, being the next next PJ O'Rourke, for example. So, so, and that, that re- it really so is Dasha. A, so Dasha is like a unicorn. She's just very I, a very I rare. Know. I think that she Dasha Burns is a young reporter who I I, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know what's going to happen, kind of with her career. I mean, she they, she might just get pushed in back and just be like, well, you you almost cost us a Senate seat. They won't say that explicitly. But that could be the treatment uh, she gets. Or who knows? Um, there are decent reporters who I still think are biased. Um, but it's, it's, it's the ones who basically sit here and use Twitter as their dopamine hit as a substitute for good journalism are generally the ones that are the problem. So I don't, I don't know what happens to Dasha Burns. Uh, I don't know what it must have been like for her going to work in that newsroom for like a week. So, oh, sorry, Dave, come back up. Michael, I'm sorry, I have to uh, remove you because we're going to end with Sheila. Dave, uh, jump back up. I'm sorry I did that. I hit the wrong button, which I'm prone to do. No, I'm right here. Uh, okay, um, well, go ahead. Here's no, no, it's just, okay, well, I'll, I'll sign off and uh, I'll just say, I just, I, I hope. It's, <laughs> David's we're, we're, in the ether right now. He's just okay. he's floating out there. Okay, um, go, I'll go just ahead. say this. Uh, regardless of what happens to Dasha, <laughs> and I hope she weathers the storm, I respect her integrity. I'm glad she was willing to sort of. She just tell the, she all she did was just pass one little bit of information, right? And you, she just became target number one. All she did was right. go. I don't think he understood me without the computer, which I don't know. That seems like a problem. And then again, you had lead cry bully Kara Swisher jump in. Kara Swisher was on Chris Wallace, and he asked her about that and her answer to me was just like, I can't believe this person is anywhere near a fucking newsroom anywhere is he said that because she said, maybe you're just not a good small talker. Maybe you're just not a good reporter or whatever. And, and Wallace said to her, why would you go there? Like, why would you say that? And she goes, I, I was mad and emotional. And it's like, goodbye. You should not be a fucking journalist. If that's your leading, you know, if your leading hint as a journalist is you, you're emotional and you get mad at statements you disagree with. And I don't care if Tara Swisher is a stroke survivor or not. Um, then you should you you belong nowhere near uh, a journalism platform at all, whether it's a podcast or anything like that. These people can't make up their minds on if they're firefighters running into a story, like Katie Turr says, or if they're getting bullied off of Twitter because you know my DMs are all lit up and and I get mad when when you talk about ableism and a certain no shut the fuck up you don't belong anywhere near any sort of journalistic endeavor at all so you're right no amen all right hey Steve um, I'm gonna sign off great uh, great talking to you as always keep up the great work sir thanks David uh, if you can't mute your mic because I, I know this is a glitch and this happened last time uh, so yeah just go ahead and mute and we should be okay. Sheila, let it rip. Hello. <laughs> Are you enjoying Twitter these days, Sheila? Oh my gosh. I, I totally kind of I boosted my attendance on Twitter like all week because I was on a vacay. I was having a vacation. And I took I think two weeks off of Colin. And I didn't do any Colin. 
And then all of a sudden on Friday night, I got ambushed. Oh my God, Elon Musk. And then everybody. And then Taibi. And then, ah! And then Twitter. And, and now it's going to be very wise. <laughs> very wise. Good God. He's going to be like the journalist of the month club. <laughs> you are chosen. And then he comes up and gives you the lick. Like, Oh, well, yeah, he said, he, he, said, he said he's only, I shall have success now. He said he's only, he turned the Twitter files over to Weiss and Taibi. Those are the only two for now. For now. And he, it didn't sound like he said, because somebody was suggesting, yeah, and then turn, have Greenwald do it. Although I would argue Glenn's kind of too much of a lightning rod now. Um, you, you Barry Weiss is a lightning rod, but um well, you know, they can all then, the I mean, like, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, if you're like looking at, board. if you're looking at like the Harper's letter, you just kind of go down the list and say, who would, I mean, I think that like, if he were to do that, Camille Foster would be my pick to do the next one. Sure. Um, there's, you know, there's other controversial names out there. I know like not everybody's favorite, but someone like Michael Tracy or, you know, these are general independent thinking journalists. They're not always bright. They're not always correct. Um, but they generally, you know, they're not going with the corporate horde anymore. And I think that that's the statement Musk is making. And, and, and it's, it, that's the primary reason you have the Philip Bumps and the Ben Collins and these guys working at corporate news outlets basically saying, how dare you give this to bloggers? Or, or Ben Collins referred to Taibi, of all people, it. as Substack guy. Oh, I, and lo- I love Ta- it. Ta- Taibi's broken more stories in his career uh, than a smidgen of what Ben Collins probably will do. You know, I got to tell you that I was talking to Kevin Collier. I, I can't say that he talked back, but Kevin Collier is a blue check that works for the Wall Street Journal in the cybersecurity division. And he was he was like, wah, 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 he's, he's NBC like News, I think, isn't he? Um, I'd have to go check He's, his blue check. I'm looking at Kevin Kevin Collier, reporter, NBC. Go, go lift up his his uh, his news flap and look at it. But I, I just want you to know that <clears throat> that he was he was cr- crowing about credentials and all this other crap. And I just kind of had to check him a little bit. And I said, "Listen, you know, the credentialism has kind of lost all of its salt, and that's kind of one of the reasons why Taibi really got picked over someone like you." <laughs> yeah no it's it is it is how dare you do this to us is what it is we we are the actual journalists and because it, reve- it reveals it so reveals a lot favors, right it, re- it reveals a lot about what people like me have been saying how they view what social media is it's we're journalists you shut up and don't talk back and we're going to put out what we want, whether it's biased news reporting or uh, sloppy reporting or my opinion or what have you, or you're going to kill everyone with long COVID or whatever. And they view it as a platform of it's this belongs to us. And this very much happened. I don't believe that. This, but I no, it's the, that's what it was. Phone. No, but that's Chinese what it was. Coffee so phone. When you look, when you look at, uh, if you remember, like Twitter just used to have trends, right? Which now it does again. It just has things that are trending. Um, it's not very good. I don't like seeing the Jews and Hitler trend every fucking day, but that's what is happening. Did you but see my? That's uh, because, Hitler's but hold on, t-shirt. yeah, hold on. But if you remember, they hired, you know, over the fact checking. Remember, this became a huge thing post Trump was fact checking and the disinformation. So Twitter had a whole curation team of publishers that would put store. They would like write their own news stories right on the sidebar 
and they would say people are talking about the latest comments uh, from someone and you click on it and you're not actually learning anything because you're not seeing what people are tweeting. The first five or six tweets are from journalists. And so that's what that platform had become. And it is the, it, it is the antithesis of what social media is. And for Jack Dorsey to turn it into that out of fear, that's what it was. Jack Dorsey was afraid of the CNNs. He was afraid of the New York Times and the uh, NBCs and the Washington Post. He was afraid that those people would turn on him. And so he basically placated them and said, yes, this is what Twitter is now. It's a tool for just journalists. And we're going to ban you or if you if you try to talk back or turn off replies even was strictly done to protect talking back to journalists and going, hey, you're kind of a hack for writing this kind of thing, aren't you? And so that is all gone now. It's it's back to what it kind of sort of is supposed to be, which to me, social media is exactly what you and I are doing right now. I'm typically not a powerful person. I, I have some fun opinions on some stuff. I'm, I'm pretty decent with media and, and their motivations and politics and commentary. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm still an independent guy and I'm talking to you wherever you are, I think in Texas and we have what, uh, 260 people here listening and who, you know, who the fuck are we? This is the whole point of what Elon Musk did with Twitter. It's he, he re-democratized it. And it may work and it may not work. But social media is not meant for a, sing, for a select group of journalists to basically treat it like a newspaper. And that's what I never understood about Jack Dorsey. It's like, why would you placate people whose industry you killed? Because they did. They based Twitter and Facebook killed news as it as it rested on the you know you sit down and you watch the six o'clock and there's tom brokaw faking being in a helicopter and that's what we do <laughs> social media killed that because now you could get you could get news without those people like you could get news on the ground of airplanes blowing up in midair um through somebody with a video camera and they couldn't tolerate that they were just like well mm. we need to we it's still our job to add context no shut up we don't need you don't you understand go the fuck away go over there we don't need you anymore oh here look i now have a sub stack i can even do my own writing and charge people and whoa people might pay me and it really that's all it just comes down i never understood why jack dorsey was like yes we must we must make twitter like the old style news gathering where the journalists speak you read and if you want to respond, you can write them a letter or uh, or send them a comment or whatever. And he, I still do that did. stuff. That's I'm what not. he did. He he placated the people who his platform actually like made irrelevant. And I never understood that. I I think Jack Dorsey is a kid who made it in tech from Eastern Oregon in the Pacific Northwest, and when he got. <clears throat> escalated into the big boys club he probably hadn't met a lot whole whole lot of journalists and you know they're very charismatic to some people and then they're very forceful and vicious to other people there's a lot of people who who don't understand pr and i don't think he had the benefit of pr conditioning or, or anybody to help him with his uh crisis management if he was having one and i think at one point he was in a transition phase with his brand. We saw that with times. the fact that Vijay Gad and Yoel Roth didn't consult with the head of the company when they mm, stopped mm, the, mm. the Biden story. And then as Taibi showed, Jack Dorsey was kind of pushing back on them a bit. It's like, why are we suspending this account? Why are we doing that? Like, whatever. 
And shortly, and then we saw like what last two years ago, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to move to the fucking rainforest where I can get my chakras open through anal bleach or whatever. And he's like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Um, which you're right. I don't, I don't think he was good with conflict because most of these controversial accounts that, that were banned from Twitter were smaller accounts on the political right, which made them easy. It, it made it easy because it wouldn't cause a PR headache. Um, when you ban a popular account on the left or a celebrity on the left mm-hmm. or whatever, he's going to be answering questions about it for two weeks by well, pissed off chap. I, I have weird questions like, why are we banning so many people, period? What, what, is, the, what is the obsession with cutting off people's mics? You know, why aren't we allowing people because it's to what they're it's, it's because it's the people who are running Twitter came from that campus culture and it's what they were taught to do. That's what we, we and like I said, this all you can trace, at least for Silicon Valley, you can trace this back to Brendan Ike at Mozilla. That's really where these people became empowered because they knew that they could get someone who made a political donation to a cause that they didn't agree with that. Now he's a hateful bigot and he's a sexist and he's whatever. And Brandon Ike's like, dude, I, I, I created JavaScript. What the fuck? You wouldn't even have a job without me. And then he said, all right, well, I quit. I'm leaving. I'm not, I'm fine. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. And that's when the inmates knew that they could take control of the asylum. That was pretty much patient zero in Silicon Valley. And they've just learned that they can be that way ever since. And and now you have someone come along that says, you know, no, you can't be that way. And also I need to see your work. There you go. And and that's pretty much what it is. That's the way it used to be. And I've been an absolute shutout. I actually have some, some writing talent. And I just, I just kind of was like, I'm not going to do this with you. If I have to become you know, a mega brand before I get there. That means that I was already something else before I was a journalist or something else. I've always been like a media advocate. That's, that's kind of my only claim to fame. That's, that's my whipping noodle. That's, that's what I've got, you know, to give to the world and the universe. I've got, I've got a little creative talent on some of these other fronts. You know, I do a little comic wiseacre thing in between to kind of grease the wheels and I'm charismatic with, with people of influence sometimes. And, uh, you know, it gets me enough butter to, to get in the door sometimes. And then I get to write. And then people sometimes will read it. And if they do, I'm very happy. Uh, but, you know, the people that end up with the beneficence of a title of journalism who don't actually perform some act of, of writing or, or reporting or investigative journalism, they're just kind of on a platform barking orders and moralizing that's something else that's like the kid who cut my mic when i kind of went back to college and did did something it's it's communism i have to just say let me just say it it's communism nobody with a uh, an unchecked point of view can ever get out of the gate they have training political training that siphons everything through the collective and i learned that at santa monica college which is like you know a a a small college transit so you could go to ucla i was just picking up some cle's so that i could get back in the game and and get a refresher of my skills for for doing web work for doing web work so you know, but I also did some activism there on campus, you know, and I was embedded with, you know, progressives at the time, you know, 
Glenn Greenwald contemporary, Matt Taibbi t- contemporary, um, Jeremy uh, Intercept contemporary, drone guy. Why can't I? <laughs> why can't I remember his name right now? He's so important. He did all this stuff for me with biometrics. Jeremy, Jeremy at the Intercept. Okay, just Jeremy at the Intercept. That's good enough. Yeah. All right. Good enough. He's not. He's. I hope he doesn't hate me for forgetting his last name. Well, this is recorded, so we'll pass it on to Jimmy. <laughs> I'll be indicted forever. <laughs> that's really the only title you need, though. Jeremy at the Intercept. Like, hi, that's, I'm Jeremy at the Intercept? Like, you don't need a last name. You just, hey, it's me with, with where I am. So, Jeremy. It would save me a lot of trouble, given, you know, the post-Trump years. But no, yeah, just Jeremy from the Intercept. I hope I didn't disappoint you too much. I'll still write. I, I promise I'll still write. Should no. I send you some? Should I, should I send you something at um, the Spectator? Uh, you, yeah, sure. Or I can I can give you an email of uh, of an editor who they, I mean they they take pitches so, um, but I can do that. I'm not going to do it here because I don't need them getting flooded with 271 pitches. Um, but um, if you if you can. Get, uh, um, figure out a way. Either send me a message here, yeah. or whatever. But I can give I can give you the name of of someone who accepts submissions. Okay, I'll do that. Okay. Is that good. Sure. Okay. <laughs> do you want to wrap with that? What? Yeah, let's just wrap with that. It's 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 ten o'clock. It's getting late. We still have our Saturday night, and uh, I, I've had a long week, Sheila. Oh, good. Well, then um, I had a kind of a restful week until Friday and then I got ambushed. So like okay. everybody else. Yeah. Um, I'm just glad I didn't have to fucking talk about Kanye last night or tonight. Good. So, Taibi and Musk for whatever comes out of this, you know, whole dumpster fire. At least I'm thankful to them for that. So I hope they're forming an editorial board. That's what I suggested to Musk myself. I said, look, get an editorial board if you need one. And you know, he's, I think this is how he's handpicking his editorial board for his his uh, future governance yeah maybe the state yeah i mean maybe he he's dropping hints and stuff and there's little cues about where i think he's taking the platform like super followers are now called subscriber tweets um and you know he said he wants to do long-form video and long-form newslettering i think he wants to basically make twitter a, a competitor of substack that's what i think but i don't foresee barry weiss like fully leaving substack to go work for elon musk so yeah, not for and a micro hope, blog. And I hope and I would hope that she wouldn't. I, I would hope Elon Musk goes and finds some younger voices that, that are independent voices and maybe el- helps elevate those people over the riffraff. So have you heard of Webb, this uh, this new investigative reporter? I think your name is Webb. She goes, uh, she's done a lot of deep research and she's all, also published a bunch. Whitney, Whitney Webb. And she. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think of a Whitney Webb? Because that's somebody who's completely out of the forum. She doesn't work for any of the corporate. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, my my thing is, is if he goes, like, an editorial board isn't the worst idea. I mean, he's going to get criticized no matter what he does. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you could take, like, 10 people who signed the Harper's letter and make them the editorial board. Um, but he's shown, like, he, he isn't really... He, he doesn't look like he does things um, at Twitter as it pertains. I mean, I know he does on polls and shit, but he doesn't look like he does things on Twitter by committee. Like it, it sounds like, 
you know, he has David Sachs there and Jason Galkanis there and a couple others that are advising him. But it sounds like he pretty much just says this is this is the direction this needs to go. And I'm making that and I'm making that declaration. Um, And that's probably how he's run SpaceX and Tesla as well. And so the people who are still there at Twitter are there because they're the right people. And that's that's something that was interesting about what he talked about tonight was he just said the company was so bloated that, Mm. you know, no like the things inside of Twitter had no idea what other parts of Twitter were doing. And he's 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 not even talking about like, you know, the the banning of the New York poster and people running in and going, what did you do or anything like that? He's just talking about like parts of the platform don't understand what other parts of the platform are doing with each other. And he's basically saying everything needs to be, you know, like one one thing going one direction, um, not like one thing over here. And then we splinter off and now we're a social rights group for the United Nations. No, get back on get back on course. And so, I mean, that's, I, I and, 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 and he, and he has said, he, he said have, he has nothing to do. And I don't know how much of this is true, but he said he has nothing to do with the Twitter files. He said, he just kind of, he, he brought in two people that I guess he thought he could trust or independent journalists and thinkers and said, here, you pour over this shit and see what you find newsworthy. He said, you know, in his space tonight that he's just concerned with the engineering side and he didn't really go into too much detail about it, but he made it sound like Twitter was just a fucking mess. Like, it got so it got so ahead of its skis and the people working there on activism and being a political tool that, you know, the rest of the car wasn't running. And so for him to just go in and say, all right, we're going to look at this now and this whole cultural shit about who to ban and who not to ban. We talked about this last night, you know, um, the, exposing this kind of techno autocracy uh, along with the federal government is way more important than whose account gets restored. And I kind of agree with that. So Sheila, I'm going to wrap it up. Okay. It's good Um, to hear from you. Just just my parting shot there is that he's got global governments that are adopting G20 um, disinformation rhetoric. And so he's going to continue to deal with some of their um, information regimes. So I, I, indicated that he could adopt a sectoral model that might be helpful. I don't know if he'll take me up on it, but he could definitely explore it because you need legal to separate from communications. And in some cases, legal and, and communications do overlap, as you well know, and having an editorial board with lawyers will help. That's all I have to say. Yeah, I mean it's 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 going to be interesting just to see what he does. And like I said, it may or may not be good, and it may it may crater or whatever. But it, at the very least, it's not going to be boring, as was kind of uh, the revelation from tonight. People out of the queue there. It's just uh, we're just getting we're just hitting almost an hour and a half here. So, uh, but I should be back probably most likely maybe Monday, depending on how I'm feeling, if not Tuesday. Um, and so if you jump in, I know, I think I saw like when Tony was back there and uh, a Michael, uh, but if you jump in the queue on those days, I'll kind of, I'll make sure to bump you up, uh, and, and, uh, so you guys get your chance. So, uh, I, I do appreciate you guys joining. I do appreciate you guys calling in as usual. Um, and again, to, uh, the audience who decided to spend, you know, a part of this weird Saturday night here, uh, we're all weirdos and, you know, we're not, uh, the, the, the normal kids here. So it's, it's good to see you guys hanging out here. Um, I should be back. I'm, as I said, for, as far as Patreon's concerned, um, 
I'm going to aim for Tuesday, but I have a little bit of a goofy schedule. So it might not be uh, back until Wednesday, but uh, I will fit in a call in either Monday or Tuesday, if should that be the case. So just be patient. And I appreciate you guys kind of understanding a little bit of my chaos schedule. So again, thanks to uh, callers. This has been uh, episode 71, Twitter Files Part 2 Reaction. There might be a Part 3. I don't know. Uh, we'll see kind of where this goes and uh, just 